everyone, this is Kate Kelly, founder of Ordained Women. And I just wanted to talk about the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. It is just such an invaluable resource. I love listening to it. I came to a point in my life where I just really needed to hear the voices of women telling stories about women. And that's what this podcast is. Lindsay's series about polygamy is unique and totally unprecedented. It's a wonderful resource and women doing wonderful work deserve to get paid. So please support the podcast if you can. If you can make a regular donation of just $5 a month, it would mean a lot. And it means not only that you continue to get wonderful material and stuff to listen to, but it also means that women doing this work are supported, which is important. So please support the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And if this is your first time tuning in, I would recommend that you go all the way back to episode one, where we talk about Fanny Alger and we move all the way through the history of Mormon polygamy. I am re-recording this, so if you have been following the series, you know that we had done an interview with Kristen Decker, who was a former member of the Apostolic United Brethren, and we were having all kinds of audio issues, and Kristen has been so generous and agreed to come back and re-record the interview. So, Kristen, hello and welcome back. Hey, Lindsay. Good to see you again. And again, I apologize to you and the listeners that we had such an embarrassing audio uh, fail. That's never happened before, so I really apologize. That's okay. I got a couple of Facebook friends, new ones from that, <laughs> even though it's great, even though they couldn't really understand. Some said, wow, wow, I'm enjoying this. And so, yeah, I'm grateful to redo it. I tried to listen and it was fuzzy. So, Yeah, so there's... There's so many important things that we talked about that I think were lost. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you some of the same questions. And if we get uh, some new questions in there, that'll be great as well. But I kind of want to cover what we covered on the other episode. I'm going to be leaving that episode up as well. So if people want to go back and listen to that, um, you can kind of try and decipher what you can from it. In, in the original episode, we talked a little bit about why we brought you on. So, of course, for those who are just tuning in for the first time, like I mentioned, Kristen uh, was involved in plural marriage, Mormon polygamy, for nearly 50 years, and she wrote a book about it called 50 Years in Polygamy, Secrets and Little White Lies. Did I get that correct? I don't have it right in front of me. Right. Big Secrets and Little White Lies. The second book is the uncensored version. So I put all of the stories in there. Well, there's still hundreds more of it. <laughs> the ones that weren't in the first book. Yeah, so um, you talk about your life in this book. And of course, you were 
deeply connected to this group because your father was the leader of the group for a time and your uncle was also one of the prophets of the group. And so you have just a very long history with Mormon polygamy. And what I would like to have you do is sort of give a brief overview about your life, but not and, you know, don't go into it too much because, like I said on the last episode, I really want people to buy your book and to support the work that you've done. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your life? Okay. Thank you, Lindsay. I was born and raised in polygamy. And, of course, like you said, my mother was the first of my father's 13 wives. He was still to many more women that would be with him in the eternities. And he, I'm a seventh, when I lived polygamy, I was, I'm a seventh generation polygamist. Clear back to Joseph Smith, my sixth great grandfather baptized my seventh great grandfather into the LDS church. Both of them knew Joseph Smith. Both of them lived polygamy. In fact, all of the men on my father's side, all the way down to me and my family, lived plural marriage. And we were told that we must live plural marriage or we would not ever be in the celestial kingdom with the rest of our families, and we would be in hell, even though it might be the celestial kingdom or terrestrial, whichever is the lowest. I always get them mixed up, and that we wouldn't have our children with us. So I lived it. I grew up in it. There were a lot of heartaches and sadness. There were many joyous times, too. We had fields to run and play in. We played dodgeball and no bears are out tonight. The family was big and we had a family all around us all the time. But that was also a detriment because there were so many family members that we lived in poverty. We didn't know how poor we were till I saw that I wore the same shoes for a whole year that we had. I had three dresses to last me for a whole month of, you know, to train, change over and over and over. Back then we wore dresses to school in public school. There were relatives all around me. Like you said, my uncle Ruin was the leader before he was murdered in his office by two LeBaron women. Then my father took his place in the leadership position as the prophet for 28 years before he passed away. And then I met my husband. He was an independent polygamist, which is meaning that he and the people in that we called independence anyway didn't really follow any leaders. And Lindsay, have you done some history already on the split between all the groups? Maybe I should touch on that a touch. Yeah, you you can tell about your experience. I would recommend that everyone go and listen to, and I'll link to it on this podcast, uh, the history of the AUB. But we have talked about all the different groups and the different splits. But go ahead and tell your experience with it. Basically, I was just a baby when the split was taking place. And it was actually starting before I was even born. So I was not part of that. But I remember the after effects of that a lot. My sister was married off into the FLDS group when she was only 13 years old. And my mother, I remember being quite sad about that for many years because my sister was forbidden to come and see her and visit with her. It wasn't until probably I was, I bet, 10, 12 years old or even older than that before my sister was finally allowed to come to Salt Lake to visit with my mother because I guess our group, the Allred group, was considered the apostates and 
our group considered them the apostates and, you know, anybody who didn't follow the rules of the leaders in that family figured the other groups were all apostates. So we dealt with a lot of backlash and family separation, my mother's heartaches, my grandfather stayed down in the FLDS group. It wasn't called that then. We just called it the Craker group, which many know. I visited down there just about once or twice a year with my mother. She was allowed to go down there. So I got to meet nieces and nephews and relatives there. And some of it was joyous. We did have some fun times. We played and did some great things. But as I grew up, I heard of all the abuses that were taking place. I shouldn't say all. There's no way I heard of all of them, but many abuses. That was also happening to me, and I found out many years later that some of my siblings had also been molested. And then as I've left polygamy, I realized how much more there has been taking place over and over and over. And the statistics of those who've left is really high in that um in in polygamy and i believe it goes back to so many children raising children so many parents busy with their own lives and survival and trying to make ends meet and and taking care of all that's needed to take care of and many times there's one woman left with all these kids to watch that was me when i was married as a first wife and then had my second wife my husband's second wife's children it was just overwhelming. It, I couldn't possibly keep up and give them the attention and love. Yeah, and we talked about this when we talked about the Kingston group, but abuse is not necessarily um, related directly to polygamy, but when you have a culture that is brought up in secrecy that does not have a mechanism for reporting, so you're taught to fear the government, you're taught to fear the local authorities, it doesn't really give you any sort of mechanism to help your community, it just sort of forces the darkness, the neglect, the abuse underground. Right. And then again, because we were all told that we needed to protect the principle of plural marriage, and they called it the principle, at any cost. And we heard that over and over and over. And my mother said many times over that we would never talk about anything bad that happened because it would make polygamy look bad. It would make us look like that, you know, we were bad polygamists and that therefore polygamy itself would be bad and we had to keep that covered. Not only that, but there's so many, many who've been abused or molested and it just carries on for generations, generations. We have uncles and cousins and all these family members around hundreds of children and they're viable. Also, one thing that is important to say is that Polygamy over the years, and I watched this happen, drew a lot of deviance into the group. There were many people who into the polygamous groups, and they would say to themselves, I'm sure, oh, wow, look at that. I can have all the wives I want. I, I will have children all around me. I will have power. So they would bring, it drew people who were already um off the, <laughs> you know, off their rockers in many senses of the word. So that created issues and problems as well. So you spoke about your mother a little bit and her sort of trying to keep up appearances and, you know, keep everything looking like it's better than it is. Tell us a little bit about your parents. But from the time I was little, tiny girl, I remember my mom being unhappy 
And over the years and since I left, I realized that she was what I call miserably happy. I did the same. She taught me how to do that really well. And the reason that I believe she was happy was because she believed with all her heart she was serving God. But I remember all the things she talked to me about that she wished she had done or couldn't do or hadn't done. And when my father was gone and as his family expanded, more and more wives and more and more children, even that came with wives that he married, she would just be more and more lonely. I don't feel that my mother ever really had her personal needs met or even became an individual other than that servitude person that was supposed to do whatever her her husband wanted, to do whatever God wanted, to, and at any cost. And we were also taught that we needed to suffer and endure to the end because our blessings would be greater in heaven. So therefore, the more we suffered and the more we endured, the greater our blessings would be. So every time my mom would cry and she'd start to tell me and then she'd go, oh, oh no, I need to be quiet. I need to pray. I need to repent. I need to fast. And therefore, she would just shut down. And I watched my mom do that. She became numb. She got to where she'd work and work and work and then she'd have a breakdown and she'd hold it all in and hold it in and then have a breakdown which, like I said, she taught me very well. I swore I'd never do that, never be like my mom. And then, of course, that was part of my life as well. And tell us about your dad. There's something unique about your dad. So tell us about who he was. Um, Owen Allred is the, was the leader of the Apostolic United Brethren. He, Like I said, he took my Uncle Ruin's place as the prophet and the leader of that group and was that leader for 28 years. He was a good man, I really believe, and so was my mother. There are so many good people. It's just the belief system and those things that we were raised with don't, you know, buy into anymore that I don't believe is good for us and that we needed to do. But my father was a people pleaser, and as a prophet, it was hard for him to discriminate from one minute he was trying to please somebody else and he would try to please somebody else and he got caught in several times in well many times in being deceitful or lying whether it was intentional or not I doubt that he was um, trying to do the best he could with his huge family he to the dying day he believed in plural marriage I believe he did with all his heart and that he had many times cried about the mistakes that he made. And toward the end of his life, he and I had a, and, so, and several of his other children had a, I don't want to call it hate, love-hate relationship, because I never hated my father. It was just troublesome. And he would call me, here comes my troublemaker, because I was starting to find myself and discover me and and after depression, after suicidal depression for all these years and having seven kids and living polygamy, and I was starting to find me and discover me through some therapy, and my father didn't like that. It was not okay. We shouldn't see therapists. We shouldn't learn to love ourselves because then we're starting to think about ourselves and what we need and what we want before other people. And I would talk to my mother about her abusive life with my grandfather, who was very physically abusive and I believe sexually abusive and have heard much more about that in my elder age. 
So I would talk to her about these things. And one time she just broke down and sobbed and sobbed. And my father came in and he said, oh, my gosh, now what have you done? You got your mother all upset and then I have to deal with it. And so we we kind of were butting heads toward the end. And there were more things that happened that were very hurtful. And at one point, I thought I may not even talk to him anymore because he had hurt me so much by the lies and the things that he had said to other people. And it was it was really devastating to me. And I thought, my father doesn't even know who I am anymore. I told my mom that he doesn't even know. He's got so many children, so many wives, so many things that we, if we even exist in his life, it would be a miracle. So that's, <laughs> in a nutshell, I, I loved my father, but it was really tough. I'm really curious how the prophet is sort of seen culturally because, you know, in the LDS church, the, the church is so big, we don't have, you know, daily interaction with the prophet anymore like they did in the early days of the church. But obviously, you had interaction with your prophet because he was your father. So you had to live sort of this public life and this private life. But what was the perception of your father from the rest of the community? Did they have his picture in their home? What was the culture around that? I don't believe that they had their pictures. My father's or Ruin All Reds or Joseph Messer's pictures in their homes as much as the FLDS had Warren Jefferson in their homes. But many in the church, in the AUB church and in many homes, not all, were pictures of the authority from this beginning from what they figured they had authority, priesthood authority from Joseph Smith or Brigham Young and on down through those and they had wall of, of pictures of those men and those prophets. So it wasn't like we were to idolize him. I don't believe we were ever told that we should idolize our prophets and my father or Uncle Rowan. But we did uh, work to pray for them and look up to them as prophets and leaders and that they had the word of God. And that, again, was one of the toughest parts for me to, as a daughter of a prophet, separate the flaws of that of a man as as my father and as those things I mentioned and many that I didn't mention and to see him as a fallible or an infallible excuse me prophet that was very difficult to do the um I wanted to I wanted to be an exemplary daughter I wanted to do and I tried to do everything within my power to believe in polygamy and follow the rules and do everything I was told, but I always questioned. And when my father, as a prophet, I saw him consistently infallible or (laughs) fallible, get these right, it was really hard to respect and honor those things and and to break that up and say, here's a man and he's, he's human and yeah, he makes mistakes, but he's supposed to have the word of God. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but on this subject, part of that was the biggest part of this was when I was realizing that the men that were being called to be on the priesthood council by men of God and prophets of God, my uncle Roland and Joseph Messer before that, were men that were molesting and raping their children. And they had in later years been caught doing that, their family started some of the children, grown up women had started to report 
And I had been suspicious about that for years and years, and yet I was told I was the one that was wrong. I'm the one with a bad spirit. You need to fast and pray more, he would say. You need to get the Spirit of God with you. And my mother would say, if, if you would do that, then you could go to church and listen to those men speak without getting sick to your stomach. So it was, those were the constant challenges in my life to deny what my soul was telling me was wrong so that I could please my parents and God, that I, the God I grew up with. I would say that was the tr- most troubling and heartache of all to try to do that. You know, like, okay, I'm supposed to have um, the baptism and have the Holy Ghost and I'm supposed to listen to that and to tell me what's right and what's wrong. And I would do that and then my pa- family would tell me that I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So as a young girl, do you grow up with this sort of romantic idea of polygamy? I mean, obviously, young girls, young children, they they dream about um, romance in some ways. And so what would a sort of romantic fantasy for maybe a 12-year-old AUB girl look like? Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) Um. I was very obviously um blooming, you know, twelve year old and thirteen year old. I I remember having a crush on every guy that you know, and I'd wonder we were told to fast and pray as well, you know, as, as in the LDS church, that we would find the right man, the one and only right man to marry. And so that was always a dilemma for me because one day I loved the neighbor next door and the next day I loved his cousin. And, the, you know, it was just fickle, like girls are and probably should be at that age and not, you know, thinking about dating. And, and the hardest, I think the toughest part in all of that was, still knowing that I would have to share my husband, still believing that because that's what I've been told and taught all my whole life. And whether I wanted to really or not, I wanted to to please God and I wanted to because all everyone else around me was doing that and I wanted to be like them and conform. But I really had a hard time with it, really thinking about that that's what was going to take place. But, uh, oh, yeah, I had a crush, and I feel like I broke a lot of hearts unintentionally, and then, of course, I feel really bad about it, terribly bad. I think, oh, and hate myself and cry about it and think what a wicked girl I am. So that was mine, and I believe that many of the girls around me felt the same way from what we talked about and their feelings and their actions. So tell us about your first husband and how you met him. And how that relationship started. He was my brother's friend. And so I on I was dating, well, I wasn't supposed to be dating until I was 16. So I had already met a guy I was kind of dating, but we had to do group dates. And so my brothers would go with us and on their dates and we hang out together. And we did roller skating parties. And I remember meeting my husband at a roller skating party, but not specifically when, because I was already um, crazy about this other guy, and he was also crazy about my friend, one of my girlfriends that was a best friend in the Allred group. So we were semi-dating those other people, and he was a good friend with my brother. So 
that made him my friend. And we hung out a lot. We'd walk at night, late at night, and walk through the fields. And he had a horse, and my brother had a horse across the way where we lived in Murray. And over at Wheeler Farm, he would go over there to feed the horses, and we just did a lot of hanging out. And he would talk about marrying me someday, and it would confuse me because I thought, well, wait, you're dating so-and-so, and I'm dating somebody else. And I never really felt like I'd marry the guy I was dating, but I, I certainly didn't think I'd marry my a good friend, you know, somebody that I could talk to about everything. And so I, we ended up marrying. He asked me to marry him several times before I said yes, and I thought, oh, my gosh, next year I'll be 18 and if I don't get married I'll be an old lady, an old maid and and truly that was another thing that went on in the group was the women and the girls thought they had to hurry and get married and have a bunch of kids. That was our lot in life was to have as many children as we could have and to get married and I was thinking, boy, if I don't take him up on this, you know, I may be an old maid before I know it. So I said yes to my good friend and that's what, you know, we had, by the time I was 16, I dated him off and on and other guys for a year before I got married. But it was um, definitely what I thought I wanted to do and what I believed then with all my heart that I wanted to do. So you have this great picture that I've linked to, I think, on your CNN interview, and it shows you on your wedding day, but it looks like it's in a living room. So explain that to me because that's a little foreign to the LDS Mormons, um, you know, because our ceilings are performed in the temple. So tell us about that. Oh, that was, <laughs> yeah, we were talking about that too. As last time it was, um, my husband and I got married legally the day before we had what we called the priesthood wedding. And so we didn't even go off on our honeymoon or do anything until the next day after we were priesthood married because we believed that that was the way that you're not married until you have the priesthood wedding. But of course, because the all reds could not participate in temple marriages and had been banned, you know, or left the church, whichever, you know, from the temple which we could go into, and you probably already done a lot about the history there. But so my father's standing there ready to perform the marriage, and I came out of my mother's bedroom, which I never had a bedroom of my own until the last year of that I was home because of the crowd and the family and everybody always there. But I walked down the hallway, and yes, everybody was sitting in the front room where my dad built that house so that they could have church in that house. And then when they grew out of the house, they moved downstairs and upstairs, and they built a garage, and we had church in the garage, and then they built another big, huge building called the, the uh, it was another garage out in Bluffdale, and then over to the Brown House, and then down to the church where they're at now. So that, I watched that group expand, but my father performed that marriage, and then we thought, oh, now we're really married in the eyes of God, but now we can, you know take off and we didn't have a honeymoon we went out to dinner and we went home and that was the that was it you know we had no money my husband had become a conscientious objector in the war 
the Vietnam War was not something he wanted to do, and they didn't participate. Many of his brothers didn't either. So he was doing his service time for a nonprofit at the Catholic, um, trying to think which one it was, one of the big Catholic hospitals at the time. So there was just no money to go on a honeymoon. We had a little tiny apartment and it was cozy and that things started changing really rapidly in our marriage. And so you talk about this a little bit in, you know, in the last interview that we did, but you seem to adore him and, you know, you have children and it's about, what was it, eight years before he takes on a second wife? Right. Yes. I was, let's see, my 76, I'm trying to remember exactly the year it was, 78, I believe. And then, and we believed all the time, of course, that we had to have another wife. The heartache, oh my gosh, every time he would flirt with somebody, even if I loved that girl or as a friend or my sisters or nieces or anybody, Right now, all these girls are flashing through my head, you know, the the ones that he had crushes on or that had crushes on him. And here we are married, and it's okay that, you know, there's this flirting going on or the the eyes and the looks and not necessarily dating. He didn't go out with them, but it was very obvious that it was okay because he had to find another wife, and I was the one who was supposed to be happy about it. And the sad thing for him is that I would encourage him to because I believed that we had to do this and by then I had children and wanted to have them with me forever and time and all eternity. So does the good wife um, joke about it and push him towards that? Yeah, the good wife thing. But then it would kill and it would break my heart. And then, then he'd be sad and he'd be mad. He's like, well, I don't want to make you sad, but we have to do this and you're the one who wants me to and I'm the one that and we have to, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, it was really tough. Um, to go through and knowing that your husband's going to have other wives and that you are supposed to keep sweet, keep quiet, get over your jealousy, and uh, you become numb, you become, you know, workaholic, or you, or it just haunts you one or the other. So tell us about those first few weeks when he gets married to your second cousin who becomes your sister wife. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that, um, I, oh, the getting ready for that wedding and the dating and the courting, I didn't think I'd make it through it. And it was something I never expected. We knew, I knew my mom's heartache. I knew that she was sad, but you don't know exactly how that feels until you go through it. I watched that all around me, and you never know until you're the one that's on the other end of the stick with the the jealousy and the knowing your husband's taken off on a honeymoon, and now he's going to bring her home, and they've made a bed downstairs right below your bedroom, and now everything has to be hush-hush, and you don't want to hear anything, and you don't want them to hear anything, and it's just, it's insane. It was totally crazy making and I got suicidally depressed and at one point actually thought about taking my life and had it not been for my babies, my two boys, little baby boys, I I may have because it hurt so bad I didn't think I could bear that pain anymore. 
And when that happens, who do you talk to? Who do you who do you speak to to reach out for help when that happens, when you're feeling that sort of despair? There isn't anyone. And if there was, unless it's a friend, I do remember now and then trying to talk to sister-in-law, and she and I were probably closer than anyone. But the thing is that we would feel defective, that we're the ones that are bad to have those feelings, and we've been told that. That we're here, the women are put on this earth to get over their jealousies, to get, to keep sweet, to not complain, to share everything without any, you know, everything. And that meant your husband, your dishes, your food, everything without any complaints and be sweet. And if you're not, then we're the defective people. And so most of us women didn't want to talk to anybody. We didn't want them to even know how we felt because that meant we were we were full of flaws. And we had too many, you know, character defects. But if we did try to talk about it, we were also told back to what I said before, fast and pray, fast and pray, read the scriptures, get over it, grow up, behave yourself, put that smile on your face, be tough, you cannot be feeling this way, God can't have these kinds of women in the kingdom of heaven and in their worlds, and you know, it was just consistently that way, and so there really wasn't, I didn't even dare talk to my mother, she would have been... You know, because she was the ultimate martyr, she would have, she helped me to be that way. You just cannot, um, have those feelings. It's not acceptable. And if you do have them, you better get over it fast. So you said something to me in our previous conversation that really resonated with me as an LDS woman. You kind of spoke about suffering this private heartache at home and then going to, you know, your church or relief society and, being happy and, you know, being with the other women and putting that smile on your face, which is a very Mormon experience, I think. So uh, it seems that women were, that was the culture, right? That they were all doing the same thing. So was there any sort of support system in place, any acknowledgement at church or in the curriculum to prepare you for this sort of heartache or to support you during it? No, Lindsay, there wasn't. And even in girls' class, there were some converts that left the LDS church and joined the Allred group and some really strong women who came into the Allred group. And they started doing activities that came from, like, primary. They they initiated, I did, and they were, some of them, helping us initiate primary and different functions that the LDS church had. And we would go and buy the books and try to do those. And they initiated uh, what they called girls' class for the teenager, youth girls, 12 and older, until they got married. And even in those classes, we were told over and over, not not um, how to deal with that, but how that we just needed to get over it. And I don't remember any remember any specific lessons other than what I just said. Stay close to God. Say your prayers. Uh, read the scriptures. Make sure you fast. Make sure you pay your tithing. Uh, talk to people. Put on that smile. And in fact, you know what? How many times I do as I'm speaking right now? I remember lessons that were act as if. Act as if you're happy and you will be. Act as if everything's wonderful and it will be. Act as if your husband's perfect and it will be. And in fact, if anything was wrong, 
then the women were accountable too because our husbands, they used to say behind every good man is a bunch of good women or something to that effect. And we were supposed to pray for our husbands. And if they weren't the person they were supposed to be, then it was the women's fault. And you just weren't being good enough. And every time I went to church, it wasn't helpful. We put the smile on our face and then we'd hear how bad we are because we aren't being kind enough, we aren't being sweet enough, we aren't doing our jobs, we aren't going to get our families to heaven. And I'd go home Sunday after Sunday after Sunday being depressed as can be. And knowing years later that many other women went through that same thing, but we didn't dare talk about it very much. My sister-in-law and I talked about it, and then we would hurry up and say, oh my gosh, we got to stop talking. We're going to get an evil spirit with us, and then the devil's going to be all around our house. And, you know, oh my gosh, it was just sad. So tell me how your you and your husband's relationship changed from, you know, living monogamy to polygamy. You know what? That is probably, it goes back to the honeymoon. I remember, and I think I mentioned this in our previous um, conversation, is that I remember one night after we had been making love and I thought to myself that there's nothing in the world, in this whole wide world, that's more amazing and more uh, binding and more what sort I want to use, just spiritual even. It was probably the most fantastic experience. And I remember thinking that I cannot, how could he ever, ever, ever sleep with another woman and do that and share what we have and and it won't and take away, well, you know, and the men want to say, and my father would say, it doesn't take away, it adds. Uh, he's not a woman and he, <laughs> you know, there's no way. And I really believe that that was the main severance. It was, then there became the trust issues. Then there becomes all the questions. He loves her more than he loves her than me. She keeps the house clean. I don't do this. I don't do that. I better do this and I better be better at that. And on and on. And you know what? I believe she did the same thing. I don't know that for a fact because she wouldn't talk to me about her story and being in the book. I invited her to, but I know she went through heartache and that she felt that he loved me more because we'd had all these years together and he wanted to be with me and those are things he told me and that she was always jealous about me. And so I wasn't alone in those heartaches and in the sadness and the concern about where he'd rather be and he'd rather have sex with her because, you know, she's skinny and thin and she hasn't had two babies and got, you know, cellulite and stretch marks and on and on it goes. And so it was, it was a severance and we tried it. We did the best we could. I know all of us did the best we could trying to do what we believed that we had to do to get to the celestial kingdom and yet hurting so much of the time. And I know even our kids were good friends. Our children were good. They are even now good friends, but they had their challenges in all of that as well. I was going to ask you about that. Is Were there any benefits? Were there things about living the plural lifestyle that that you guys held up as like, see, this is why it's from God? Well, we tried to do that. <laughs> 
Um, I I remember so many times sitting with when my husband was with her, the second wife, and when my sister, when my brother was with his other wife and another friend of ours, there would be three of us women who get together every now and then, like at least once a week with our kids. And we would sit there while they're playing and talking and we read books or whatever. And we would talk about all the things that we'd heard all of our lives that makes plural marriage wonderful. And we would try to convince ourselves of why it's so wonderful and to and, and no, we we did try to convince ourselves. And like you hear now from women, you hear that a lot, or I don't know about you, but others from the people that live polygamy about how wonderful it is. Well, once you get to the other side of the fence where I'm at now with them, my husband, my two, my precious husband, who I love and adore, and we're partners in everything. And I have wonderful women friends who aren't sleeping with my husband and I love that. So we don't have to have plural marriage to have wonderful friends that help and support each other and babysit for each other and would drive to this hospital if necessary to help us out. And like I said, even the having a home mom, that's insanity. It's totally insanity. Even the ratios for daycare are more strict than we have with plural families with one woman trying to help the kids. And I was that stay-home mom that that was crazy <laughs> trying to raise them. There, I in looking back, Lindsay, when I was there, I thought there were all those benefits because we convinced ourselves of that. But being outside of it, there is I do not see one benefit, not one that I don't have in my life right now by being a monogamous marriage. And you know, this is we're going to talk about this later on in the episode, hopefully, but. You know, you have founded a coalition called Sound Choices, and we talked about the idea of informed consent, informed choice. And you said something that really struck out to me about, you know, you've tried the grass on both sides of the fence, right? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Thank you. That's one of the things I realized is that in what I was just saying about the heartaches and the things that we thought was wonderful and made the best of it, I really believed when I was in polygamy and in the group and following my father as a prophet that everything I did was my choice. I would I would say it. I put the smile on my face. I went to church. I did everything I was supposed to do in public, presented like this is the best thing ever and would even say that and believed it was my choice. But after leaving and realizing, and once I woke up and started finding myself and appreciating, I realized, and especially looking back on the wedding day, how how that was typically a gun to my head. And it's like standing on the precipice of a cliff and my father saying, you will do this. Need it. This is not literal. It's just the analogy. You will do this or you will go be shot and go straight to hell. You will be destroyed. That's the words in the Doctrine and Covenants. Women will be destroyed. And that's what we believed. So that wasn't, there is no such thing as consent when there's force or a, a, something being held over you to make that choice. And until I really got it and was waking up and left and everything I hear and everything I did, I look back and I say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. I cannot, I just can't believe I bought into that. But yet that's all we knew. All the people that are in there now that are converts or that are 
living that way, but have been indoctrinated to believe that this is what they have to do or else. And that just doesn't make sense. That's not genuine choice. And so there, that's, did you want me to talk about the coalition right now or a little bit later? Let's get into it just a little bit later. Um, I want to kind of hear about, with, like I said, not going too much about what you talk about in your book, but tell us how you got to where you are now. Wow. That's a big question, I know. <laughs> yeah. I had become suicidally depressed, and I literally, I talk about this in my book, where I climbed in bed and wanted to die. I weighed believe I think it was 238 and was and and I was using food as my drug of choice to sedate to try to get rid of all the heartache and the sadness and the pain and the feeling that I was worthless person and was never going to get to heaven and I was so bad and my friend came and hauled me off to get some therapy which wasn't okay then I went back everything seemed to be okay for a while but as time went on I began to question even more. I always questioned, always did, and the answers were never fulfilling to me. I would, I just put it on the shelf and I'd just say, well, I guess that's whatever dad says because he's a prophet. Whatever God says, he's the one. doesn't make sense to me and I don't like it, but I better follow it. What were some of the things you questioned? What were some of the questions that you were asking yourself? Oh, my word. I questioned why... Of, of course, the main one would be, why do men get to have more than one wife and women don't get to have more than one husband? And why are men the boss? Why do men have the priesthood when women are known to be more spiritual? Even my father would often say that. And then he would say to me, well, because there has to be a head of the household. And I'd say, well, why can't the woman be the head of the household, especially if she's more spiritual? Well, because that's the way it is. You know, God is man, and man has got, you know, the manner of the ones. They're the supreme, <laughs> the supreme beings. And then I would question why there, what are some of the other things I would always, like any doctrine sometimes that would come up. Right now I'm trying to think of what some of them would have been. You were, you sort of talked about, and we didn't get this on the other episode because of the sound quality, but you question the historicity of the 1886 revelation, the eight-hour meeting. Oh, thank you. Yes, that was another one. Um, there was considered the eight-hour meeting, the 1886 revelation, and there, there had been men who told that story over and over and over and over through the years, and we used to even celebrate it. And yet, to me, I, I questioned it, too, and I'd say, well, how come in this church history it says that that's impossible? And Lauren C. Woolley wrote that story many years later. How could that be possible? And these these things were taking place. The older I got, the more I was able to do my own research and studying things and find out. And so we, I would question that, and my father would say, that took place and we have the witness, and Joseph Smith visited John Taylor, and he set these men apart, and that's the way it is. And I would go, okay, and then I'd buy into it again. He's the prophet. He's the word of God, you know. <laughs> and so absolutely, there is, I wish I could remember all the questions I asked, but I was always wondering. In fact, even in college, I was known as the question woman. <laughs> 
like, uh, well, tell me about that. How does that make sense? How come women um, don't get to have, uh, oh, here's another one. Yeah, I'm just thinking of this one. One day I remember sitting there crying, fighting tears because I had all seven of my babies at home, natural childbirth, no pain, killers, nothing. And I had gone through all that labor. I got my first little girl and I, we were doing the name and blessing just like they do in the LDS church, but at home or in our churches. And this happened to be in my house, take place in my house on a Sunday afternoon. And my husband got up and with the men that were the priesthood holders and held my baby and gave that baby a blessing. And I thought, you know what? I should have a right to be there. You know, God create, I created that baby with God and, you know, with, you know, the God miracles is what I'm trying to say. In my womb, I gave the baby birth and now I get to turn that baby over to the priesthood and they're going to name my baby. And I, I remember that I always questioned it, but at that point in my life, and she was my fifth child that I was questioning more and more, I thought, boy, that, that just, that's just something wrong with that where the women can't hold, stand up there and hold their babies too in the circle. And, um, yeah. <laughs> So you were a Mormon feminist. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Always, always. Yeah. The troublemaker. So, <laughs> so you start to question your suicidal and you eventually leave the lifestyle. And we talked about this a little bit, but this has resonated with me as well. It was striking to me how similar your journey leaving the AUB is to so many Mormons who lay, leave the LDS church. And of course... That is not meant to diminish your experience because I think the stakes are higher when you're in um, a polygamist sect of the church because your whole, not just your faith is questioned, but your lifestyle is questioned. Do you want to talk about uh, what it was like to leave? It was a big challenge. I, I don't know why that I didn't expect the heartache that we would all go through in my decision to leave. It came about after realizing that those men that I doubted and never trusted might were molesting their kids. And there had been many things, like I mentioned, already there. I had questioned even the authority of God, the God I grew up with anyway, um, who was mean and punishing and wrathful. I don't know if I mentioned that or not, Lindy, is that being molested and my mom would tell me, oh, if you are a good girl, nothing will ever happen to you. And if you do what's right, then God will protect you. And I remember thinking, well, that God either hates me or I really am a bad girl. So all of my life, these things that, that had been in my head and in questions were questioning the foundation was just breaking apart. And it was crumbling pretty fast and especially... I would say it just blew to smithereens when those men were accused and and proven, in my opinion, to be, you know, evil men. And they, they had been apparently called by God and weren't. And so I questioned God. I started just leaving everything. But I was also, what was really weird about this is that I was falling in love but with my husband while I'm leaving I'm falling in love with my husband, and I think the reason for that was is that it was um, he was all he too questioned. He always questioned things. He there were men on the precinct council that he didn't like, and he never felt that he needed to kiss 
uh, you know what, to get what he wanted because we knew that there were men in there who committed adultery. We knew there were men who'd been embezzling uh, tithing money. There were men, there were all kinds of horrible things going on. And these men were going through the temple at, at that time, not the te- LDS Church temple, but the Allred Group Temple. And so he, too, had been questioning. And so we were kind of leaving, in a sense, together. But uh, there happened to be another woman come along in the picture, and it was hurting too much. And I thought, I am i can't stay. I don't believe it anymore. And, you know, that's like a soap opera kind of situation in, the, in my book. But, but in leaving, it really did hurt uh, my family a lot. And in deciding to make that decision, it uh, my oldest son didn't talk to me for almost a year. I have a son who still doesn't talk to me, and I'm not sure exactly why and what that's all about. I, I can only guess, but um, the heartaches were there and still are. And, that, and also with my sister wife. She was hurt. I was hurt in many ways of, from misunderstandings. Her kids were, mine were. And it, it was major challenging, but the toughest part, I would say now that I've been out almost 13 years, is the family that are still polygamists that don't talk to me anymore. And in particular, one of my brothers who's only four years older than me, and he and I were pretty close over the years. Not intimately close as far as where you talk and can say everything, but uh, really loved him. He was a sweetheart man. and. He's got plural wives and does the best he can, but when I wrote my book and started speaking, he decided that I can't talk to him anymore, and I I understand. I remember how many people left the Allred group, and I bought into that, that you throw them under the bus, you make them, or you believe they're wicked, or they've done something terrible, and all the lies go around about you. You know, you're an adulteress and you're, you know, I remember here and I was, I'd become an alcoholic and I was like, oh my word, I, I bought into that when I was in. I get it. You can't be part of that without covering, putting on your blinders and staying blinded. You have to do that to stay. So is now a good time to mention to the listeners that we are completely drunk while we're doing this, this interview. Because I I got the same, you know, I think where you and I are similar in our situations is not only did we question things and stop attending or whatever, but we are public about it, right? I went on and did a podcast to talk about it. You did a book. So it's not like you leave and leave quietly. You're talking about it, too. When I left quietly, my brothers still talked to me. And I, and they would give me hugs and they'd invite me over to dinner and I'd invite them and they'd come. Not anymore. And so that, you're right. It's that we're speaking out and they do not want to have other people question. They don't want the truth out there. They don't want these feelings and emotions. And, and also, you know, I've been raised that if I ever did this, that I'm just as bad as the devil. I'm his advocate, you know, helping him. And so that's how he sees it. And part of me hurts for him because of that. It's like, can't you love me anyway? You know, I let you do what you want to do, but he doesn't see it that way, of course, <laughs> you know. Well, I feel like, you know, they take it as a personal attack almost because I remember when my best friend left the church, 
I, it hurt me personally as if she was leaving me. Yes, I agree with you. I felt that way when my sister left. Um, one that's 13, let's see, she's nine years older than me and she left and I remember thinking, how could she do that to me? How could you leave me? And then I remember staring in the mirror and going, and I'll never leave. I'll be the good girl. I'll be the good wife. I'll be the one, you know? And now here you are, an alcoholic, hanging out with Satan. A prostitute. A prostitute. <laughs> your, your life is in shambles. Yeah, um, we're going to talk about this when we talk about the FLDS, but so many of the people that leave the FLDS church say, if this is hell, I am happy to leave heaven to go to hell anytime because this is so much better. And, and that's also a trope too, right? We're told that, you know, well, of course it's more enjoyable to be over the world, you know, eat, drink and be merry, but it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. I think, you know what, Lindsay, it's, it's genuine happiness. This is not about eat, drink and be merry. I've never felt such joy in my whole life. And, and I've never felt so grateful in my whole life for the peace and serenity and my partnership with my husband and my family and my friends. And in fact, I've truly, it never had as close friends as I have now in when I was in the group. And I believe that's because we, we could never be real when we were inside. We could never have feelings. We could never talk about it and share it and, and say, this isn't okay, and that's okay, without being put down for that. And now I can be real. I can love me and love my kids and my grandkids and my husband and and do what I want to do and say what I want to do and be real. And there's such a joy in that that it's magnificent. And I that's what I really want for everybody. That's what I want for my sister-in-law and my and my brothers and my families that are still in. And I wish I could just share that with them and they could see it and believe it and buy it. And no, 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 we have to suffer because we want to stay here so we can have the blessings in the hereafter and still hanging on to that. So I heard that uh, in all the groups, not just the LDS church, but in all the groups, there is the same sort of problem with people finding out the history and leaving is that a problem happening in the AUB that you've been aware of? I think that more and more people are leaving, and people ask me that consistently about, do I think it's going to go away, polygamy? Do I think more are leaving than staying? Is it going, Is it diminishing? And I'm not sure I understand your question, but I do believe that people are... Here's what I think is happening, is that more and more people are seeing that we can leave, and we're not turning dark and ugly and going to hell and doing all these wicked things, really, they want to think we are and say we are, but that we are happy and that we have such wonderful lives. Not all of us, of course. There are many people still struggling. There are lots of the youth who leave believing they're going to go to hell, so I might as well join them and do the eat, drink, you know, drugs and all that stuff. And then, But many of them are finding their way back and then finding genuine happiness. I th- I believe that people are waking up. It's the era of time when that's supposed to happen, I guess. Yeah, and, you know, we talk about this quite a bit in our own community here, that there there is sort of this, we call it the ex-Mormon adolescence, but since you're taught such strict things and you're not 
taught healthy, you know, narratives about sexuality and about drugs and alcohol. And you're not, you're really not taught moderation. I mean, in the LDS church, we're taught balance. It's all about balance. But the LDS church is not about balance. It's about abstaining completely. It's one end of the spectrum. So I think it's natural for people to kind of go and explore. And like you said, it's like, it's like going on a diet. You know, people go off the diet, they eat a bunch of cake, but they realize they don't want to eat cake forever and they come back. Yeah. I see that happen a lot. And even I did that for a little while. I thought I, I think I shared that before I went from the God that I grew up with to no God at all. And it was like, this is, I didn't even want to hear the word prayer or fast or anything that sounded religious at all. And I come back, you know, to middle ground where I feel I have a relationship with God and a spirituality that I never had before. And, and I'm comfortable where I'm at with that. And I believe that God is comfortable where I'm at in all of this. And it's such a, a peaceful, feeling that I wish I could express to people that it's worth it. It's really worth the hardship and the heartache and the troubles of of leaving, you know, that people are, that they don't get it to find yourself and find your joy and, and that relationship with God. So this interview kind of went in a different place than our last one, but I do, I do want to talk about some of the questions I asked. Do you have time for that? I know for any listeners out there, you have no idea that the audio technical difficulties we've had. It's like unprecedented. So you are being a trooper for staying around for this. Thank you. So I'm um, glad to share the message. <laughs> you know that. Well, tell us, I, I'm curious about um, some of the doctrines and practices of the AUB. One of them we talked briefly about was racism because, you know, the LDS church has grappled with racism, but we like to think, oh, it's over now. You know, we lifted the, the temple and the priesthood ban. But from what I understand, Mormon fundamentalists are a little bit more blatantly racist than uh, the LDS church, who are sort of benevolently racist sometimes. Very much so. Some of the children I've heard talk about that have attended church at the, L, um, excuse me, the AB church, have actually come back saying horrible, mean things that are very racist remarks. And I can't remember them specifically, and I wouldn't even want to mention them, but it it really is heartbreaking because that, to me, tells me it's still going on, that those children are still being in hurt and listening to very racist remarks. And we were, of course, taught, just like the LDS Church in the beginning, the fundamental teachings that African Americans would not have the priesthood until everyone in the whole world was offered to be baptized in the church and that Jesus would come back and set things in order. And that, and then when the LDS church offered the blacks a priesthood, when they decided to do that, the All Red group decided that now the, the temples, we won't, we used to pray to the temple. We would literally face the temple, the nearest one, and pray that the temple doors would be open up unto us, the worthy saints. And we would pray for that day that we could have the opportunity to have the ordinances done in the temple. Well, right after that took place, then the AUB decided that they had now been desecrated and that the black people had been offered priesthood. They were, that was it. That was kind of a final line. So now we will do our own temple 
work. We will build our own temple spaces. And they started doing that, having wearing the long garments still, the very, very old-fashioned ones to the ankles, to the wrists, and with all the markings. They perform all of the same original old, old uh, temple ordinances that took hours and hours and hours to do. I think my mother told me it, it took a day and a half to do them all when she went through the temple, the Logan Temple. And she was my father's first wife, and that was before polygamy for her. So they went through the temple. And, um, yeah, doing temple ordinances, the black people, and what other one did and you wouldn't let them, eat. I mean, they weren't even allowed in your church. You don't allow people of color or just black people to be members. They don't, You absolutely not, because you cannot socialize. In fact, this was what my father would say. It's not that we hate him because he didn't, my father, I didn't believe was a hateful person. It isn't because we hate him. We really feel sorry for them, but we can't socialize because it's those you socialize with that you end up marrying. And so we just don't want that influence in, within our families or around us or in our churches. And so it wasn't that they couldn't just come and sit and, and to participate in listening to church. It was that they, if they did, then we might meet them, we might like them, we might socialize, and then we might marry, and that's evil and wicked. And you you mentioned a story about getting a patriarchal blessing, and I think it was your cousin, and uh, the patriarch could say, I think you have too much, you know, African-American blood, you cannot be a member of this church or something. Did I hear that right? Um, you're close. We talked about that. Yes, there was, there was a person fairly recently that, something happened and I just heard pieces and bits of pieces so I won't even try to say that one because it's not factual to me yet until I hear it firsthand but anyway my uh, uncle Ruin had visited with uh, one of the women who were who had been converted to the Allred group and she asked for patriarchal blessings so she was going she was actually wanting to marry my brother-in-law and he told her when during the blessing that he had this impression, the spirit of the Lord, that she had African-American blood and she could not join, that she couldn't even be baptized into the Aura group, that she was, you know, I'm sorry, honey, but you can't and go away. That kind of attitude. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, um... What about blood atonement? Is that something that's taught or believed in or talked about? You know, I the the AB believe the last words I've heard since I've been out of there from those who've left fairly recently still say that the AUB people still believe in the blood atonement. They have just not been told by God to go kill somebody or that they haven't been given the revelation that they should shed their brothers, you know, slit their throat or disembowel them or those things that were promised to do if people left. But another way that the blood atonement is shared in the is in fear. And that's by telling people that if they leave, bad things will happen. And 
my brother told me that his mom, one of my aunts that I write about in the book, that he, she would tell him, it's better that you were to die in an accident. It's better that you were to fall off a cliff and die if you leave because then you would be blood atoned, then you would be saved. And so he left fearing every day that he would be killed. I had that too because I remember my mom telling it to me many times that I think it haunted him more. Maybe it's just because it took me longer to leave. He was younger when, you know, when he just didn't participate in, in polygamy. And so there. Yeah, wow. When I, when I compare our LDS experience with yours leaving, I, I don't think I ever had to worry about that. I don't think we worry about being killed. Good, good. One woman did leave years and it's been probably 20 years ago or more. And she left with her children and not uh, maybe a few months. I don't know the timeline. She got in a car accident and they were all killed. And I remember the word going around in the AUB that see, see, she was killed. They were blood atoned because she left. Thank God that, you know, that happened because God saved them by blood atoning, you know, by her dying before she could go too far and become too wicked. And it was, it just haunted me. That was another one of those questions. It was like, how can you people talk like this? How can you say such horrible things? And that that was the belief. They were, everybody was grateful that she and her children got killed so they could make it to heaven, be blood atoned. That's fascinating. Um, and very dark. <laughs> what about, uh, Adam God? Well, that, that'll be the last one I ask you about that. The Adam God doctrine. The original doctrine of the LDS Church taught the Adam God doctrine where that men will become gods and have their own worlds and their own kingdoms. And in fact, that's what part of the plural marriage was established for, according to the Joseph Smith doctrine and things and Brigham Young's teachings and the journal of discourses that I read and grew up with, was that men, these men were to have all these wives and all these children so they could have and become gods of their own worlds. And so they believed that Adam and Eve were, Adam was the god of this world, of the earth, and that Eve was his wife and that he did have many wives. They even believed and taught that Jesus Christ had plural wives. And um, so we had, yeah, some pretty out there teachings about that. And we've covered some of the history of that on the podcast. So our listeners, if again, if you're just tuning in, these episodes are meant to go in order to sort of lead you up to this. But those are fascinating things to look at. And and they're not exclusive to fundamentalists. I mean, Mormonism still has remnants of it, and it was actively taught for over a century. Yes. Yes, it was. Not not necessarily the Adam God, but some of these doctrines, I guess, I should say. Uh-huh. Yeah, that one was for quite some time. And then I remember reading, and I believe it was Brigham Young or maybe the, it might have been John Taylor now because I believe he still believed in the Adam-God doctrine. I can't remember which one it was, but said something to the fact that, that anybody that believes in that is, you know, uh, something about being punished for believing in it. I wish I could do verbatim what I read. So let's talk about some of the positive things. Sorry to, to kind of make you <laughs> revisit those, but uh, let's talk about the positive things. 
Talk about uh, the coalition and the work that you're doing right now. Thank you so much. For about 10 years while I was leaving and going to school and getting a teaching certificate and trying to find my life and rebuild my life, I realized that there was a group of people called Principal Voices and they were that women in the Ulrich group had written stories about their testimony. They gathered all together and wrote their testimonies about how wonderful polygamy was. And I tried to read it and it kind of just gagged me. <laughs> but I thought, well, that sounds just like brainwashing to me, like we grew up with. These people that are brainwashed don't know they're brainwashed for heaven's sakes. But anyway, when I was out and helping, I wrote my book and I started participating in helping people who wanted to leave wherever I could. And I started as a HOPE president down here in southern Utah and did that while my book was coming out and being published. And so I got very involved along with my husband, my current husband, in helping. And the more he did that, the more I realized that there's something is really bad wrong here when we've got all these pro-polygamists out there not only advocating, but going to schools and going to social workers and going everywhere they could to talk about how if my child runs away, then they're just being a rebellious child. It isn't because we want to marry them off to an old man, and it isn't because they're, you know, we're trying to make them fast for a whole week and a half, or it isn't, you know, we're good people and you just need to send them back. And of course, I'm being a little bit facetious, but some of that's very real, as we know. And uh, I, I just, the more I talked to people, the more I realized that my story is not the same. I mean, Lindsay, my story is nothing compared to so many more that are just horror stories. And I was realizing that somebody needs to speak out. Someone has to talk and let people know that this is just not okay. So I chose the word sound because in the dictionary and choices, both of those words have incredibly long, wonderful, explicit, uh, reliable definitions about what sound really means and what choices really is. And growing up in polygamy and being indoctrinated, that that's what you have to do is nothing about choice. And so I am so grateful we have the opportunity to speak like right now or anywhere we can. I published my second book and it got to be where I didn't even care so much about my book as much as about speaking and letting people know and be educated about the harms of polygamy. And I know I I don't think there's anything productive about it still. People try to convince me and I haven't been yet. <laughs> you know, um, even moms that say they'll take the babies if their sister wife dies. It's like, well, you know what? I'm sure that my sister would take mine if I die. And we wouldn't have to be sister wives to have that happen. And so there's many things that I'm so grateful now. I can hardly express that, um, the words of joy in my life. And I want that for everyone. The coalition is, you can find that. You can go to sound Dash choice. Are you going to post these, Lindsay? Yeah, I've got this linked. I'm going to link, and, and then I'm going to encourage everyone that you know, because we have a lot of women that are really hurt by hearing this stuff, and they want to help. So I'd encourage them to contact you because you need volunteers, right? So yeah, we're going to link to it. Um, follow the links uh, again, like buy the book, follow the links, 
and um, help out with with that. And then I'm going to try to get Kristen more involved, you know, on some future projects because I just love her. So we'll have to. Thanks. I love you too. Uh, well, you've been, you've been like so, so patient. Um, one other thing that I wanted you to talk about that was important that I think got lost in our other interview is just the power of being able to tell your own story and control your story because, um, I've learned, you know, that sometimes, um, there are, there are lots of things written about polygamy. There are a lot of exposés and articles and interviews, but sometimes those can be harmful. And, uh, I wanted you to just talk about that a little bit oh thank you thank you so much that's a very good thing to bring up one of the things that's happened um fairly recently in fact in the last couple years is women that i've ran into and met over in doing what i do and meeting more and more and more people all the time and realizing that stories that are written in books by authors that come in to interview, say they interview me or my sisters or anybody else or whoever it is, and there's been a couple authors that have written books where they uh, come and listen and interview people and write the stories in their own words, or they change them, or they elaborate, or they put on their little twister, so I thought I heard it that way or that's the way it is, and several, uh, quite a few of the women in two books in particular that have been mentioned fairly recently have been, um, they're, they're just, uh, gosh, re-victimized. It's horrible. It's just absolutely horrible because the truth isn't always being told. They might tell a little bit of the truth and then they've embellished the rest of it or they have turned it around. And I mean, th- these girls have a right to tell their own stories. And even in my book, when I wrote about other people, I asked them, and those that were willing to talk to me would tell me their story, and then I'd send it back to them, and I'd say, is this like my daughter's story? Is this the way you saw it? Is this okay with you? And if she had asked me to change it, I would have. But those it's not reliable is what I'm trying to say. Don't buy into these are factual stories when so many of these girls have told me that isn't my story, that's a lie, not at least some of it and quite a bit of it in many cases. And that might include books that we have featured on this podcast, correct? Yes, yes. And that's why I felt it was so important to bring that up. And I so much appreciate you letting me have that opportunity to do that because these girls aren't alone. I mean, when you get five, seven, one, two, I think it's at least seven girls right now in two particular books, um, one that you did most recently, saying that's not accurate, that he made this out and made that out, and just oh, horrible. And you know what? Victims already uh, have a horrible time, as all of you know that. And when somebody writes more horror about you and lies about you, it's just devastating and it's hard to function. So please, please be supportive of the real stories, the people that have written their books and their stories, not somebody else who comes in and claims they're telling somebody else's stories without signatures, that that's the way it really is. Yeah, and we've had a lot of back conversations about this. And one thing that I've learned that I never really paid attention to, you know, in the feminist community, we talk a lot about 
being victims of sexual assault and things like that. But in our minds, we don't really, especially as Mormons, we don't really consider people that leave polygamy to be categorized as as such. And the similarities and the symptoms and the, the patterns of behavior and stories are the same. Yes, very, yes, yeah. So it's something to keep in mind when we talk about, you know, these women that have that have left the the groups and things like that. So that's something we're going to really focus on in our dialogue moving forward. So I really appreciate you and others being willing to work with me on that. Well, thank you for being willing to. That that means a lot to us. And what you're doing, Lindsay, is incredible. And I'm so grateful to be part of this. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, and thanks again for coming on and putting up with our terrible audio. And thanks for the listeners for putting up with our terrible audio. I know a lot of people wanted to hear this again. So again, check out the website, go follow the links, support Kristen, buy her book, and um, volunteer. And Kristen, thanks again for coming on. Thank you. And thank everybody else, too.